on today's episode, the first of the new year, 2020, we're discussing Sada Abe and the Lipstick Murderer. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. People put it down, but what you're supposed to do in a small town. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. Lord, have mercy, can't help being bad in the Boondocks. Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I am one of your hosts, Dan. And I am Drew. How's it going, everybody? I hope that everyone had a superb Christmas and fantastic fucking New Year. Mm-hmm. We partied all night long on New Year's. Just kidding. I was asleep by 9 o'clock. <laughs> I was, too. But anyway, that's how we party in the Boondocks. Yeah, nothing much exciting ever really goes on around here. Well, we did shoot fireworks just like as soon as darkness came. Yes, yes, I know. We shot them around like 6 o'clock, and that's about it. Well, Dada can't hang. Nope. Those partying days is over. And it's been quite a while, but we really do thank everybody that stuck around and is listening to this brand new episode. Yeah, because like... I think we have some new listeners yeah i I think that we do but i feel kind of bad you know not posting for a little bit i know i do too but we have been busy like last week okay we were gonna post last week and here's our reasoning for not because we went to florida and that's about it we went to florida yeah and me and the wife now we're members of a timeshare diamond resorts yay yay that was only about thirteen thousand dollars. Yeah, that's Yay. not that much. That's not that much. Uh, we'll be paying that off. You for got a while. plenty to spare. Plenty no, to spare. No, we have none to spare. <laughs> Broke anyway. Essence. But here's the deal. It's a new year. It's a new us. We've got to get back at back in the groove man we've got to get back in the in the momentum and if y'all have found us from invisible choir why don't you catch us up on facebook or email us or something and let us know yes because i think that that helped out our listenership all I, right i'm gonna get into my story this well, is for interrupting me oh sorry go ahead i'm gonna quench my parched throat actually i wasn't gonna say anything i was i need I you to say something so i can quench I my really parched throat. i really don't know what i was gonna say but you have to do that every damn time bro god i have a very dry oh mouth. my goodness my throat's so parched that i have to drink every single episode and i just got to drink 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 all the time don't i that's about it. Anyway, all right. it's just so distracting. Your choice. I picked crazy. this story because my son Drew, and that's shut up co-host. He loves Asian women. Oh my God, bro! Asian gals. I have okay here. I like all women. I like all women. I'm not just. I'm not just a fan of Asians. 
I'm a fan of any kind of race. But you're a super fan of them. <laughs> Whatever, man. Whatever. Anyway, I won't go into details or nothing like that. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate that. But here we go. Okay. So let me tell you this tale. Now, forewarning, as if you need to be forewarned. I'm from South Carolina, if you didn't already huh. know. No shit. I'm going to fuck up these names. <laughs> just just going to tell you. As we do. As we do. We're the most known to fuck up names. Yep. Anyway, here we go. Sada Abe was born in 1905, which I heard was a good year. How? I just heard from some old prosties. It was a good year. <laughs> okay, sure. Her mother doted on her youngest child and let her do as she wished. She encouraged Sada to take lessons in singing and in playing the shamisen or shamisen. Or what? Shamisen. What I don't know what it's called. I don't know what say, it is. So you, you know saying? what? Two tears in the bucket, motherfucker. <laughs> Both activities, which at the time were more closely associated with geisha and prostitutes than sex with, workers. I'm going with prostitutes. You know what? I'm not politically correct. <laughs> than with classical artistic endeavors. Geishas were considered glamorous celebrities, and Sada Abe herself. Followed the image by skipping school for these lessons and wearing stylish makeup, which was very taboo back in those days. Who? As family problems over her siblings, sister Tabruko and brother Shintaro became more pressing, Sada Abe was often sent out of the house alone. Well, she soon fell in with a group of similarly independent teenagers. That's not always good. At the age of 15, during one of these outings, Sada was raped by one of her acquaintances, and even though her parents defended and supported her, she became a difficult teenager. Wow. As she became more irresponsible and uncontrollable, her parents sold her to a geisha house. Well, what is that? Like an orphanage? No, it's like glamorous prostitute. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. The parents did that? Yes, as a type of punishment. How fucked up is that, man? You get raped and then you go to a prostitute house? Well, they were hoping to find her a place in society with a little bit of direction. And I assume that direction would be south. Well, yeah. Toku Abe, Sada's oldest sister, testified that Sada wished to become a geisha. Sada herself, however, claimed that her father made her a geisha as punishment for her promiscuity. Even though it wasn't her fault. 
Yeah. Abe's encounter with the geisha would prove frustrating and disappointing. To become a true star among geisha required apprenticeship from childhood with years spent studying arts and music. Sada wound up a low-ranking geisha in which her main duties were to provide sex. So, kind of was ironic that they sent her there because of her sex that wasn't her And then she was made as her job to have sex. Yes. Isn't that ironic? Poor thing. Isn't it ironic? Don't you please don't start that stupid ass song. She worked for five years in this capacity and eventually contracted syphilis. Oh no. Since this meant she would be required to undergo regular examinations like a legally licensed prostitute. Wait, syphilis isn't curable, is it? No, Drew, it is not. I'm making sure. I don't know. Some some diseases Not that are. I know of. I don't have it or anything, and I'm not an expert uh-uh. on it. Yeah, sure you don't have it. Who knows what you have? But a legally licensed prostitute at the time would have to go through regular examinations. So instead of so going she- through that, she decided to enter into something of a better-paying profession. What is that? Strictly sex work. I figured because you have to go through examinations and you have to be spot free to be in there. Sada Abe began work as a prostitute in Osaka's famous Tobita brothel district, but soon gained a reputation as a troublemaker. She stole money from clients and attempted to leave the brothel several times but was tracked down by the well-organized legal prostitution system. I mean, maybe the parents weren't such shitheads and she wouldn't have turned out the way that she did. Maybe. However, as we will go on to see, she loves her some fucking sex. It's shitheed. After two years, she eventually succeeded in escaping the licensed prostitution system. And she began work as a waitress. (laughs) However, not satisfied with the wages, she was soon working as a prostitute again, though now unlicensed. She began working in Osaka's unlicensed brothels in 1932. Sada's mother died in January of 1933, and Abe went to Tokyo to visit her father and her mother's grave. She entered into the prostitution market in Tokyo and became a mistress there for the first time. Tokyo. When her father became seriously ill in January of 1934, Sada nursed him for 10 days until his death. In October of 1934, Sada was arrested in a police raid on the unlicensed brothel at which she was working. Kinosuke... Kasahara, a well-connected friend of the brothel owner, arranged to have the women released. He was attracted to Sada, and finding that she had no debts, and with Abay's agreement, Abay's made her his mistress. Oh. 
Tassahara? What was that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it was your makeup palette. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Tassahara set up a house for Sada on December 20th, 1934, and provided her with money. In his deposition to the police, he remembered, she was really strong, a real powerful one. Damn it, I wish we could do the accents. I know, but people hate them. <laughs> that would, I would be say, so okay, good. I'm going to do them even though people hate them. Um, it's so good, though. She was really strong, a really powerful one. Even though I am pretty jaded, she was enough to astound me. She wasn't satisfied unless we did it two, three, four times a night. She just wanted to do it over and over. One time not enough for her to please her. <laughs> One time, not enough. To her, it was unacceptable. Unless I had my hand on her private parts all night long. At first, it was great. <laughs> but after a couple of weeks, I got exhausted. <laughs> oh. Unquote. He gets exhausted from that, huh? When Sadar suggested that Kasahara leave his wife to marry her, he refused. She then asked Kasahara to let her take a lover, which he also refused to do. After that, their relationship ended. And to escape him, Sada left for Nagoya. Is that a place? Yes. Kasahara ended his testimony with an angry remark about Sada. She is a slut and a whore. And as what she has done makes clear, she is a woman who men should fear. They should fear him very much. <laughs> Unquote. Likewise, Sadar remembered Kasahara in less than flattering terms, saying, <laughs> really? You have to do He didn't love me and treated me like an animal. He was the kind of scum who would then plead with me when I say that we should break up. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> you did the hair for it? Yes, I did. I do my hair. Oh, my God. Shut, my shut, the, shut, Baby, oh, shut the fuck up, please. Please don't do that damn song, dude. That song is the most Ooh, played child. out. It is so played out. And Nagoya, in 1935, again intended to leave the sex industry, Sada began working as a maid at a restaurant. She soon became romantically involved with a customer at the restaurant, Goro Emiya. Where is this going? You'll hear. A professor and banker who aspired to become a member of the Diet of Japan. Knowing that the restaurant would not tolerate a maid having sexual relations with clients and bored with Nagoya, she returned to Tokyo in June. Omiya met Sada in Tokyo, and finding that she had contracted syphilis, paid for her to stay in a hot springs resort. Wait, so the other guy didn't know that he had syphilis too? Guess not. Oh, wow. He'd have something else to say about her. But paid for her to stay in a hot springs resort in Kusatsu 
from November until January of 1936. In January, Omiya suggested that Sadah could become financially independent by opening a small restaurant and recommended that she start work in an apprentice position in such a business. Back in Tokyo, Sadah began work as an apprentice at the Yoshida Ye on February 1st, 1936. The owner of this establishment, Kishizo Ishida, 42 years old at the time, had worked his way up in business starting as an apprentice at an eel restaurant. He had opened the Yoshida Ye in Tokyo's <laughs> Nakano neighborhood in 1920. When Sada joined his restaurant, Ashida oh, was known as a womanizer oh, who did little in the way of running the restaurant, which was managed mostly by his wife. Not long after she began work, Ashida began making advances, um, advances, advances. <laughs> towards Sada. Omiya had never satisfied Abe sexually. So she wasn't interested. And she gave in to Ishida. How? By letting him get in but, to her. But did she kill him? In mid-April, Ishida and Sada initiated their sexual relationship in the restaurant. To like, the like, on, like on one of the tables? To the accompaniment of a romantic ballad sung by one of the restaurant's geishas. So it was on one of the tables. Exactly. <laughs> I guessed it right. On April 23rd, 1936, Sada and Ashida met for a prearranged sexual encounter at a tea house. Who goes to it's, a tea house? Well, it's the contemporary equivalent of a love motel. Oh, my God. So you go to a tea house to have sex, yes, and it's kind of yes, like a love yes, motel. back in those days. Good God. Planning only a short fling, the couple remained in bed fucking for four days. Four days? What did they... Oh, I know what they ate. Never mind. Four fucking days. Days. Actually, oh my they God. did have room service, but they would not. Even they don't need the room service. No, they would continue fucking while the room service came in. That is redonkulous. How is that not raw? And you know what? He actually wasn't redonkulous. And he was how average? How in the but hell? But it's not the size; it's the motion. Yeah, but how the hell did he stay erect all that time? On the night of April. 27th, 1936, they moved to another tea house. Oh my God. You know how tired I would be? In the distant neighborhood of Futako. Oh my Tamagawa. God. Dude. I'd be like, bitch, you got to go home somewhere. I'm, I got to go to bed. I got to Here, sleep. they would continue to drink and have more sex. Good God. Sometimes with the accompaniment of a geisha singing. Oh, Jesus. They would continue. To ferociously have sex, even as the maids entered the room to serve sake. <sighs> now, they next moved their marathon sex bout to the Ogu neighborhood. 
Ashida did not return to the restaurant until the morning of May 8, 1936. So they started on April 23rd, January, February, March, April 23rd, and he got back to the restaurant on May 8th. Count them days up. Are you freaking kidding me? And how much intercourse? That was all sex. Bro. That is crazy. How in the hell? I don't understand okay. what's enjoyable. Now, well, after all of that, Ashida, the first day is of Ashida Sada later said, "It's hard to say exactly what was so good about Ashida, but it was impossible to say anything bad about his looks, his attitude, his skill as a lover, the yeah. way he expressed his feelings inside me." Oh. I had never met such a sexy man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As they crazy. separated, Sadah became agitated and began drinking excessively. She claimed that with Ashida, she knew love for the first time in her life. And the thought that Ashida was back with his wife, entering his wife, made her jealous. Mm-hmm. Over a week before the murder, Sadah became considering it. On May 9th, 1936, she attended a play in which a geisha attacks her lover with a large knife. After seeing this, Abe decided to threaten Ashida with a knife at their next sexual meeting. Wait, wait, wait. Ashida. So is she going to cut off his stick? On May 11th, 1936, she pawned some of her clothing and used the money to buy some sushi and a kitchen knife. Mm. Sadah later described meeting Ashida that night. I pulled the kitchen knife out of my bag and threatened him as had been done in the play I had seen. And I say, Kichi, you wore that kimono just to please one of your favorite customers. You bastard! I kill you for that! I <laughs> you. Ishida started and drew away a little bit, but he seemed delighted. He said, ha ha ha! <laughs> what the fuck? He thought it was all a joke. Ishida and Sadah returned to Ogu where they remained until his death. During their frantic lovemaking this time, Abe put the knife to the base of Ashida's dick. Yes! Yes! And said she would make sure he would never play around with another woman. Oh, damn. Ishida laughed at this. Why are you going to laugh? You've got a freaking knife to your penis, However, dude. two nights into this bout of sex, two nights of this, Sadah began choking Ashida, and he told her to keep on, saying that this increased his pleasure. Wow. And she had him do it to her as well. Now, on the evening of May 16th, so this is five days later. Yeah. Wait, no. 
Yes, no, five days later, yep. Sada used her OB sash to cut off Ishida's breathing during his intense orgasm. They both thoroughly enjoyed it. They repeated this for two more hours. Oh, my God. You would think that you would die from that alone. No, I've done that before. Yeah, because you're a freaking fruitcake. You just have to be careful. No shit. What I'm saying is... Once Sadah stopped the strangulation... Because you can do it too much, you know? Ishida's face became distorted and would not return to its normal appearance. She did that on purpose. Ishida took 30 tablets of a sedative called Calmotin to try to soothe his pain. Because he was hurting so much from the strangulation. Bro. Intense Why would he take 30, though? According to Abay, as Ishida started to doze, he told her, You'll pull the cord around my neck and squeeze it again while I'm sleeping, won't you? Oh, my God, dude. So she didn't kill him. If you start to strangle me, don't stop. Because it is so painful afterwards. Bro, that is, he is freaking crazy. Sada commented that she wondered if he had wanted her to kill him. But on reflection, decided that he must have been joking. About 2 a.m. on the morning of May 18, 1936, as Ashida was asleep, Sadal wrapped her sash twice around his neck and strangled him to death. Oh, my God. So he didn't die from the pills? No. She later told police, after I had killed Ashida... I felt totally at ease as though a heavy burden had been lifted from my shoulders. And I felt a sense of clarity. After lying with Ishida's body for a few hours. Bro, but she could have gotten away with it. attempting to have sex with him. Jesus Christ, but he wouldn't get up. After two hours, she next severed his genitals with the kitchen knife. Jesus. She cut off his penis. And his balls. Yes, but took the average size penis, wrapped it with the balls. No, motherfucker. Oh, my God. In a magazine cover. Oh, okay. I thought, here's what I thought. I thought that she wrapped it so that the um, muscle would go to all one place, kind of, to make it erect, and then was going to stick it in her. You do understand that the penis is a muscle. You do? Uh, yeah, but if you wrap uh, it uh, and it uh, tightens uh, no, it. No, no, no. She cut it off. Okay. No, Blood but what is sa- what makes okay, that look, muscle look, look, look. hard. Just like you've got air. No. You've got air. No, no, no. You squeeze something. No, no, the no. air goes to one side, right? Blood is what makes the penis hard. Bro, whatever. Go on somewhere. You if know what I meant. cut it off. You could have just laughed. You could have just laughed it off or said, how much, how did I know all about that? Well, anyway, she wrapped it up and put it into her kimono. And kept it with her until she was arrested. That way, his dick would only be for her and no one else. Bro, but 
she could have gotten away with it if he, if she would have just tied his neck and she had him. She kept it with had her twenty four seven for three days, bro. But he could, she could have tied his neck and had him leaning over, you know, like he was choking himself to ejaculate. And then, I mean, and then he well, would have died. Well, with the blood from where she cut his dick and balls off, bro. She wrote, "This off. Kichi." Kutarikiri, which means Sada Kichi together. On Ishida's left thigh. And on a bed sheet. She then carved Sada into his left arm. After putting on Ishida's underwear, she left the Love Motel at about 8 a.m telling the staff not to disturb him. When asked why she had severed Ishida's genitals and penis, Sada replied, Because I couldn't, I couldn't take his head or body with me, I wanted to take the part of him that brought me back to me the most vivid pleasure and memories. Oh my God. His penis not so big. It's not big, but it's just average. But it's, but it's the way that you use it, and he could use it so good in me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That way I knew he would never use it on another woman, and it'd just be for me to use. Good gracious. After leaving the Love Motel, Sada met Goro. She repeatedly apologized to him, but... Unaware of the murder, he assumed that she was apologizing for having taken another lover. Her apologies were the damage. Was the damage to his political career? What? On May 19, 1936, the newspapers picked up the story, and his career was ruined. And Sada's life was under intense public scrutiny. The story immediately became a national sensation, and the ensuing frenzy over her search was called Abe Sada Panic. Police received reports of sightings of her from various cities, and one false sighting nearly caused a stampede. It resulted in a large traffic jam, It was, this crime was satirically dubbed the Goichihachi Incidents. Okay. On May 19th, Sada went shopping and saw a movie. Remember, she still had the penis How, involved. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, she's got I wonder it. if it was shriveling up by this time. No shit, it would be shriveling up. And how was nobody else smelling it? I guess Not if just, you put a carrot I guess in that it. they just thought that it was popcorn. She stayed or in. a hot dog. What if she would have put it inside of a hot it like dog? A lollipop. What if she put it inside bread and then gave it to somebody and it was like in no, the movie? No, she only wanted it for herself. Shut up, shut up. And it was in the movie theater, but it was dark, so you couldn't really tell. So they literally ate someone's penis. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. She stayed at an inn in Shinagawa. Shinagawa. 20th, where she had a massage and drank three bottles of beer. 
She spent the day writing farewell letters to Omiya, a friend, and Ishida. She planned to commit suicide one week after the murder and practiced necrophilia. So, to answer your question, yes, she would remove the penis from her kimono and insert it into her vagina. What did I tell you? And enjoyed him for three days before she was caught. That's kind of hot. I'm just picking. I'm just fucking picking. I, d- I did not mean that. I she promise. said that she felt attached to Ishida's penis and thought that only after taking leave from it quietly could she then die. So she would unwrap the paper holding and gaze at his penis and balls or scrotum. Then she put his penis in her mouth. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And tried to insert it into her vagina. However, it, it, didn't, go in. it didn't work. But she kept trying and trying and trying Bro, and trying. Bro, it's not going to go in. Then she felt and decided that she would flee to Osaka and stayed with Ishida's penis all the while. Dude, she could have gotten away, though. In the end, she was going to jump from a cliff on Mount Ekoma while holding on to his penis. Mm. Trusty At 4 sword. o'clock in the afternoon, police detectives, suspicious of the Elias, which she had registered, they came to her room. She said... For them not to be so formal that she knew they were looking for Sadal, right? Well, that's me, she said. I am Sadal. When the police were not convinced, she reached into her kimono. Is she fucking stupid? And displayed as she does penis and genitals she wants as to proof. Get, bro, she wants to get arrested. She There's was no obsessed way. with just his penis. I don't okay? understand it, though. That's all. No, she was completely obsessed with him. I know that, but what I'm saying is, why is she like that where she just wants to get arrested? She could have said that she wasn't Sadah. They didn't even believe her. Sadah was arrested and interrogated over eight sessions. The interrogating officer was struck by her demeanor. When asked why she killed Ishida, because she wanted to see She became for so excited herself. and her eyes sparkled. And her answer was, I loved him so much, I wanted him all to myself. It's like she has no clue what she's doing. But done. since we were not husband and wife, as long as he lived, he would be embraced by other women. I knew that if I killed him, no other woman could ever touch his penis again. So I killed him. I took that penis. In attempting to explain what distinguished Abe's case from over a dozen other similar cases in Japan, William Johnston suggested that it is this answer which captured the imagination of the nation. She had killed not out of jealousy, but out of love. Mark Schreiber notes that Sada 
Newt's notes. Newt's that the Sada incident occurred at a time when the Japanese media were preoccupied with extreme political and military troubles. And he suggests that a sensationalistic sex scandal such as this served as a welcome national release from the disturbing events of the time. The incident also struck a chord with the Euro Euronanistensu which is erotic, grotesque, nonsense style, popular at the time. I'm not sure why that was ever popular, but whatever. Is there a place called Estonia? I don't know. Estonia or it sounds East, familiar. East Estonia yes, or something? Yes, it is. Yes. It is. Estonia. Estonia. E-S-T-O-N-I-A. And they kind of sound like, and take the, and take the notes, like the notes, mm-hmm. kind of say like, like that. Oh wait, shit! I messed it up. Like, like that. <laughs> Fuck okay. That well, up. when the details of the crime were made public, rumors began to circulate that Ashita's penis was of extraordinary size. However, the police officer who interrogated Sada after her arrest denied this, saying Ashita's was just barely average. Bro, so it was actually very big, but she thought that it was average. No, 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 it was very, it was barely average for a Japanese penis. So you're talking about three inches here. <laughs> she told them that size doesn't make a man in bed. Technique and his desire to please her or what she liked about that penis. After her arrest, Ishida's penis and testicles were moved to Tokyo University to be studied. Medical School's Pathology Museum. They were put on public display soon after the end of World War II, but they've since disappeared. Oh my God. Are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) Anyway, well, guess what? She took them, or either another person took them. Somebody else had to take them, right? On December 21st, 1936, Sada was convicted of murder in the second degree and mutilation of a corpse. Because she really thought that she didn't do anything wrong. Though the prosecution demanded 10 years. Wow. Mm. What did she get? Sada claimed that she desired the death penalty. She was, in fact, sentenced to six years in prison. Dude. So it kind of helps if you say, I deserve the death penalty. Then you well, get less, right? Well, her sentence was commuted on November to 10th, four. 1940. To four years. So, guess what? To three years. She was released exactly five years after the murder, mutilation. Oh, my God. On May 17th, 1941. Dude, she killed a man and stole his penis and used it for three, like three or days. Or disrupted for. For three days. Disturbing occurrence. Yes. I don't know. If I die, I wish somebody would take mine. That's very wicked. I wish they would be like, oh my God, he's got a great penis, you know? That would be such a self esteem booster. I exactly know you're dead. Yeah, but I mean, if if you could see, if you could see, then I'll be like, thank you for spreading the love of my penis. <laughs> what? <Nada. laughs> well, anyways, we're going to take a quick break right now, and then I will be telling my story afterwards. 
and we are back and i think that you said that you would have a little something for us whenever we came back from that short little tiny break yeah actually it was like almost 24 hours. <laughs> yeah it was but a little something uh, it's a, it may be a decently long story and it's probably going to be just as long as yours but oh i don't know she just told me that but it I, was a <laughs> oh you asshole okay well it's going to be about the lipstick killer and I'm surprised since he has a nickname. You've never heard of him. I said I don't think I have. Well, of course. I'll dear, let you know if I dear, have one. During the story, then halfway through we get we halfway through it, then he'll all of a sudden say, Oh, he'll pause I, it he and didn't say write in lipstick, did he? Bro. Did he? Yes. Okay, yeah, I've heard of him. Fuck. Does <laughs> does it matter? No. Because I've never heard of okay. him. Okay. Well let's go. Fine. I know that we haven't talked about it before. No, I know we have not done him. Okay, then it's all good. On September 5th, 1946, William George Herons, I think that's how you say it, Herons, was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences for the murders of 43-year-old Josephine Ross and 32-year-old Francis Brown and six-year-old Suzanne Degnan, who will forever be known as the Lipstick Killer. But it's a really question of, really, did he do it or not? Was he guilty? Was he found guilty? You can't go by that, because because I, I really don't think I don't think that's fair. And I'll get in Legally, I'll get into kind of I will get into that later. But oh, yeah, we'll wait to hear about that. Legally, I think you can though. No, because there's a lot of people who are found guilty that are innocent. That is true, and and their confessions are almost beat out of them. But legally, oh my God, shut the hell up, dude! Look, okay, I'm just gonna keep on going, or else this will take years. Legally, I'm, oh my God. Okay, go ahead. Are you done? Thank you. I love me not being able to see your face because I know you're making some very mean faces at me. <laughs> Look like a constipated face over there. Who, me? Yeah. No, I don't. I'm smiling. Okay. On a hot summer day, June 5th, 1945, in Chicago, Illinois, the body of 43-year-old Josephine Ross was found in her apartment at 4118 North Kenmore Avenue. Her body lay in bed um, as though it was posed. Investigators found that she had been repeatedly stabbed, including a stab in the throat, but her body had been washed and all of her wounds covered with tape. Her head was then wrapped with a skirt. Josephine Ross, although her body had been washed, investigators still found dark hairs um, clutched in her hand, presumably from her killer. Well, I think that just goes to show how clean he was yeah yeah he probably stank <laughs> yeah like isn't that the weird thing like he'll wash other bodies but then his self is so rank you know what i'm talking about himself is rank sure. like they don't wash their own ass but they want to wash other people's asses say it like that there but you go what i'm saying is he didn't wash her very good Oh, I just I took so it I took I it a different he way. Just himself good. I, t- I took it a different way. Obviously. I was thinking about okay. obviously. <laughs> Police assumed Ooh, that blew. My mouth is above your head, and it blew right above it. Your hair didn't Ooh, catch it. Gosh, hell nah. 
Police assumed she surprised an intruder and was killed as a result. But nothing had been taken from her apartment. Because of her hairs... That's weird, though. How did they know nothing's taken? You know when they say yeah, like, taken? Yeah, like, what about a luxurious... You don't know good smell. we got up in here, because there's, like, a, a lot ton of, of shit. shit in here. Yeah, but what about a good candle that your great-grandmother exactly. gave for you? Exactly. You know, I mean, they don't know if that's gone or not. You might have missed that candle. What about this can that we've drank out, and it's trash? They don't know if that's taken. <laughs> nope, sure don't. We could have money in that can. We could. But we we could. Well, they... um. What are we you don't. doing? <laughs> Hell no, we don't. The um, the killer was presumed to be a dark, complexed man. Complex. Complex. A complexion. 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 Dark skin. Dark complex. Dark skin. Man. Yes. About six months later, on December tenth, the body of thirty-two-year-old Frances Brown was found slumped over her tub in her home at three nine four one. North Pine Grove, apartment 611, so anybody knows that, you can send us a message. Her apartment door was open, and a cleaning woman noted a radio playing rather loudly. Francis had been shot in the head, and a butcher knife had been driven sideways through her neck. So this time we have a gun shot and yeah. stab. And stabbing, yes. The knife went so far, it entered one side and protruded from the other. Well, it depends on where you stab it at, you know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been the short end of your neck, right? In the front, you know? True. Or um, it could have been the full force in the width And if you're talking your about me, it's all, which neck are you talking about? I'm talking about three of them. Huh? There you go. A Where's knife? the lipstick coming into the picture? Sure. Her body had been stripped naked. And just like Josephine Ross, she had been washed clean of blood. Her head was wrapped in towels. Again, just as the case with Josephine Ross, police assumed she had surprised an intruder. Oh, my God, but nothing had been taken from the apartment. Instead, this time a note was left behind, written on the living room wall in lipstick. Um, The lipstick note on the wall of Francis Brown's apartment, to make that clear, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I can't. I cannot control myself. For heaven's sake, yeah. bless your heart. It was written in lipstick. That's okay. Fortunately, the killer left behind a bloody fingerprint smudge what a, on the door jamb to the apartment, as well as a witness to his escape. Who was the witness? We'll get to that. I'm sorry. George, you know, don't you don't have to do all that. I'm just saying I'm getting there right now. George Weinberg reported hearing gunshots at about 4 a.m. And John Derrick, the apartment building's night clerk, reported seeing a nervous man aged 35 to 40 and approximately 140 pounds get off the elevator and fumble for the door to the street before leaving on foot. Yet four days after the murder, Chicago police announced that they had reason to believe the killer was actually a woman. Uh, just because of the lipstick? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a little retarded. Almost like you. Uh, what you talking about? 
Mama de said I'm special. Oh, my Lord. Almost a month later, six-year-old Suzanne Degnan. Is it Suzanne or Suzanne? I mean, it may be Suzanne, but I think that it's Suzanne because it's... Suzanne is just sounding... S-U-Z-A-N-N-E. Shit, yeah. Yeah, that would be Suzanne. Ah, darn. Gosh darn it. Not Suzanne. Suzanne, because I, mean, that's like I thought so country. because it Suzanne. had the Z in there and it had the two N's, so, so I was pronounce it Suzanne. I thought so. Um, good. was a re- she was reported missing from her family home at five. You know what? Why do people even? I mean, I kind of understand the addresses, but you ain't got to say the actual. Place. I know, right? Because yeah. nobody knows where it's that is. Like, I'm so particular. I'm going to give you the number. Nobody, of the kn- nobody knows where that is. But I'm going to say it anyways. If, what if you're living in that apartment now? Be like, oh, oh shit, shit! I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here <laughs> tonight. But I ain't got nowhere else to go. I'm <laughs> okay. Continue. Five nine four three North Kenmore Avenue, Edgewater, Chicago. Her first floor bedroom window was shut up, was open, and a ladder was placed underneath it outside the apartment. Police also located a ransom note on the property. The note read, "Suzanne Degnan, jail twenty thousand. Ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens." On the reverse of the note was written. Burn this for safety. Following her disappearance, the Degnam residents received many calls from a man demanding the ransom, but he always hung up before any details could be worked out or arranged. Shortly thereafter, the mayor of Chicago, Edward Kelly, also received a note. This is what it said. This is also to tell you how sorry I am for not getting... for... (laughs) not... not to... To get old Degnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made his own made their own laws. Why shouldn't I? And a lot more. <laughs> and just so you know, OPA is Office of Price Administration. This note changed, of course, of the investigation as there was a national on meat packers strike in progress. One executive of the OPA had just been assigned armed guards after receiving threats against his children. Mr. Degnan had recently moved his family to Chicago and was a senior at OPA executive. These people meant business, even decapitating and killing a man involved in black market meat. So police were not- Black market what? Black market meat. Meat? Yeah. So police were looking for a meat packer because of... (laughs) You (laughs) said meat packer. Oh, Jesus, I know. (laughs) Anyways. Oh, Jesus. Oh, shit. Oh, Jesus. You trying to do my (laughs) part? Be quiet, bro. Brian. 1940 through 1949, meatpacker strike neighbors of the... <laughs> you said it again. Damn it. Fudgepacker. Neighbors of the Degnan family were all questioned, but most had nothing useful to report. 
This is until police received an anonymous phone call suggesting the police look in the sewers near the Dagnan home. Sorry. Jesus Christ. When police did, they discovered the severed head of Suzanne Dagnan in a storm drain sewer that was in an alley only a block away from their home. So they were searching the storm drains. Oh, yeah, the guy said to. Oh, oh, sorry. Further search led police to the girl's right leg in a catch basin. Oh, Jesus, that's that's bad there. Her torso in another storm drain. <laughs> Quit making that face. This is a serious note. I know. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and her left leg in a um, drain in another alley. Each piece was found um, further and further from the family home. It took investigators an additional month to find her arms, which were in the sewer drain on the other side of Howard Elevated Train Line. I don't know where that is. Well, it says more than three blocks from the Degnan residence. Still don't know where that is. Well, we do because they gave us the exact address. I know, but it's but not we like don't know where it's not that like is. we're not, from South Carolina. Exactly, it's not like I'm going to look it up. We ain't that fucking smart. I mean, I ain't Jesus look it Christ! Up. All this city shit. <laughs> <laughs> all the drains have been capped with circular cast iron manhole covers. We don't have that here. We have our own nope. individual wells that we use our toilet. We shit and piss. We flush it. It goes into our backyards. Okay. Thanks for the um. The info. Just saying, that's that simple life of Southern. Well, the manhole covers. <laughs> the manhole. That were, sounds so vulgar. Yeah. Weighed um, at least 110 pounds, yet no one heard them being lifted or even slid back into place. Place. Well, I mean, you might not. You know what I'm saying? If your manhole I mean, you big. <laughs> I mean, you may not, though. That's the thing. Like, of course. They, I mean, I think my manhole would know. Shut up, man. I mean, it's a few seconds, though. Well, maybe maybe 30 seconds. You pick the thing up if you're decently strong. You move it to the side. You get out. You close it. Shut up. Hmm. The search of an apartment building near the location where Suzanne's head was found uncovered a basement laundry room with four tubs containing evidence that she had been dismembered there. The floor had been mopped. The blood was found in the drains of all four tubs. The press began referring to um, this room as the murder room, even though the autopsy showed that Suzanne, Suz, Suz, Suzanne, okay, what was I saying before Suzanne? Suzanne, Suzanne. I was no, about to say Susan. Suzanne, 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 had clearly been alive when taken from her home, murdered at a secondary location, and then taken to the laundry room. I mean, yeah, I mean, you would figure that she was taken from her home alive, not killed in her home, or else there would have been some type of probably evidence, wouldn't you think? I would think so. Of like some kind of struggle or something. The coroner placed her time of death between 12.30 and 1 a.m. Shit, that's late. Mm, I've been asleep for a while. Mm-hmm and said that a very sharp instrument or knife had been used to dismember her body. Dr. Kearns, the coroner's expert, said, quote, Either a man 
who worked in a profession that required the study of anatomy or one with a background in dissection. Not even the average doctor could be as skillful. It had to be a meat cutter. The coroner agreed, stating that it was a very clean job with absolutely no signs of hacking. More witnesses came forward. The police gave over 170 polygraph tests. The tenant who lived in the apartment above the Degnan family, Ethel Hargrove, reported hearing loud male voices downstairs and dogs barking when she arrived home at 12.30 a.m. Another tenant was able to collaborate her story. Frida Mayer, who lived above the laundry room, reported seeing a man enter it at around 3.40 a.m., stay for 10 to 15 minutes, and leave it through, leave through the alley. She said he turned to the laundry room again, 15 minutes later, and stayed for several minutes before heading back out to the alley. When he returned a third time, only 15 minutes later, he stayed for a moment. Marion Klein and Jake DeRosa reported looking out their apartment window at 3 a.m. and seeing a man wearing a gray hat and tan coat. They said he appeared to be trying to get into the laundry room, but ran away after being disturbed. Now, this is a lot of witnesses and a ton of information right here. You know what I'm saying? They should be able to catch somebody from from all of this. I mean, they should be able to, but... It's so, it's odd. Another neighbor, George Subskrunsky, <laughs> yeah, that's it, went to police shortly after the murder and reported seeing a man walking to the Degnan home at around 1 a.m. He said the man was carrying a bag and described him as being about five foot nine, approximately 170 pounds, and 35 years old. Well, you know, the... The age kind of collaborates with the other woman's story, you know, that saw him first. Uh-huh. But the weight's way off. Like 140 pounds okay, well, is way smaller than 170 pounds. That is smaller. Yeah. I mean, you may not be able to tell a difference if it was I'm dark. Sure you would, though. But that's 30 pounds. That's a lot because whenever you weigh 140 <laughs> pounds, that's pretty skinny. Well, that would be like if my nuts were cut off. Oh, my God. Whatever, man. (laughs) I'm sorry. It'd be like 30 ounces. (laughs) Wait a second. What was that? What? (laughs) I don't know, man. But now now you made me lose my... Okay, I found it. I found it. He was wearing a light-colored... Um, fedora. What a dork. I love it. A fedora is so cool. <laughs> and a dark coat. Well, anyways, um, then there was Robert Reis- Resner. That may be right. I don't know. You want me to spell it out for I know, you? I it's Robert Resner. Okay. A cab driver who saw a woman behind the Degnan home at 1.30 a.m. She had a bundle uh, um, under each arm and got into a car driven by a gray-haired man. Missy Crawford, who lived across the street, said that she saw a car with a man and a woman driving up and down the street at 2.30 a.m. The police now have a profile for the killer. The killer is likely a male, roughly 30 to 40 years of age, 
and somebody between 140 and 170 pounds, and he was under six feet tall, would have to be strong to lift the manholes that weighed 110 pounds. He would have a background in anatomy or dissection, as the dismemberment of Suzanne was done with skill and precision. He was most likely a disgruntled disgruntled meatpacker with reason to be upset with the OPA. He may even have a female accomplice. Police arrested 65-year-old Hector Verberg. <laughs> Verberg. Can you help me out here? Well, how do you spell it? V-E-R-B-U-R-G-H. Cannot help you. <laughs> I said it before. I said it before, but it was just, I just never knew. Hector Verberg, <laughs> a janitor in the building where the Degnan family lived. Police told the p- press, this is the man, although he did not fit the profile, he had no surgical knowledge nor skill as a butcher. Police used evidence of him frequently fre- frequented <laughs> the so-called murder room and said the state of the ransom note had to be written by a dirty hand such as that of a janitor. So because he went into the murder room, which doesn't really give anything because he is a janitor, and because he had a dirt because he works and he may have dirty hands, then they presume it was a janitor. Him. Well, with no direct evidence, police um police pressured Verberg's wife to implicate her husband in the murder, but she refused. Police held him for 48 hours of questioning, during which time he was beaten severely. Verberg said, Oh, they hanged me up. They blindfolded me. I can't put up my arms. They are sore. They had handcuffed on me for hours and hours. They threw me in the cell and blindfolded me. They handcuffed my hands behind my back and pulled me up on bars until my toes touched the floor. I know eat. I go to the hospital. Oh, am I so sick? Any more, and I would have confessed to anything. <laughs> hmm. And he was presumably from a different country, possibly Mexico, you know? Throughout the entire ordeal, Verberg denied any involvement in the murder. He ended up spending 10 days in the hospital, and it was later determined that as a um, Belgian, oh, he was from Belgium. I forgot that. Belgian immigrant Verberg couldn't write English well enough to handwritten the ransom note. Verberg sued the Chicago Police Department for fifteen thousand, and he was awarded twenty thousand. The afternoon of June twenty sixth, nineteen forty six, seventeen year old William Herrings set out for the post office to cash his one thousand dollar savings bond purchased with the money from previous burglaries. He had a date with his girlfriend later and needed cash. Herons put a revolver in his pocket, nervous because he would be carrying such a large amount of cash. When he arrived at the post office, it was closed, but he still needed money. He resorted to burglary. He went to a building he had stolen from before, just a few blocks from the Degnan house. He spotted an open apartment and lifted a dollar bill when he was spotted by a tenant. He fled out and then up the back stairs of a nearby building. 
where he tried to lay out, lay low, but a resident spotted him and called the police. He tried to escape down a staircase and was cornered by two policemen. He pulled out his gun, and according to Herons, he turned and attempted to run, which resulted in a scuffle and an off-duty police officer dropping three clay flower pots on Heron's head from the top of the stairs rendered him unconscious. So he was running, and then the police, the, the off-duty police officer dropped the flower pots on his head. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something you would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but not on purpose. And I'd say, damn, I just knocked out somebody. <laughs> Man, that would be something. <laughs> what? Because just the way you say it. Man, that would be <laughs> Um, According to police here in charge, Tim, what? Nothing. I'm just wanting to see what. What, you trying to show me. your chest hair open or You trying to show your chest hair or something? I don't know it's hot as hell in this room. I had to unbutton the shirt. Sure. <laughs> Some of us are hot, some of us are not. Whatever. We don't hate on the nighters. Whatever. Heron starts him with his gun firing twice. The gun misfired, um, misfiring twice. both. I know that. Because you just said that. No shit. <laughs> Prior to the off-duty um, officer dropping three clay pots on his head, um, Williams Herons was taken to the police hospital at Cook County Jail, where he was stitched and bandaged and strapped to a bed. He drifted. Stitched, bandaged, and strapped. Yep. SPS. Some bullshit. Sounds like my night last night. I have no idea. <laughs> That's kind of insulting myself. I don't know why. <laughs> and we keep rolling on. He drifted in and out of conscience. That's how. That's how she likes it. Yeah. Uh-uh. Dri- <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That sounds dirty. <laughs> like you don't have a dirty mind all the time? Not like that. Hold on. You are full of it. <coughs> okay, I muted my That's, mic while that, I sneezed. That is all that you talk about. What? That's all that you have is a dirty mind. No, it's not. I don't talk about being in and out of consciousness. That's like rape. What? I'm, oh, I wasn't talking about it. Because you were about to say No, I wasn't, I wasn't talking about it about that. I was okay. talking about bandage stra- and strapped to the bed. Well, could you just say it in and out of consciousness? That's well, how she liked it. I didn't mean <laughs> it like that. I meant like the other thing, strapped to the bed. Oh. Thank you. Just to clarify. Okay, well then, yeah, cool. I'm not weird. I'm not, I'm not, oh, whatever. That is very debatable. Oh, well. But heard someone saying he was a suspect in the Degnan case and felt his fingerprints needed to be taken. Police raided his parents' house, his room at the university, and a locker at an... What the hell's an L station? The hell? I know. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, at a train station. Okay, that means... It's probably like the L train or whatever. Yeah, well, that's and where his... Yeah, there. where his haul from his previous burglaries were discovered. Herons was interrogated around the clock for six days, being beaten by police and being refused food or water. Now, who is this saying? Who is this coming from? What? He said this, or is this on video? Why why must you put me on the spot like this? Because I'm just saying, this is one of the reasons you're saying you don't think that it's him? Yeah. Okay, so is this captured on camera? 
If not, then this is just he said, and I might would say the same damn thing. Just to put, you know, to make people think I was. I'm going to presumably because. Here, wait, I'll keep on going. I'll keep on going. Okay. Um. He was not allowed to see his parents for four of those days and was refused his lawyer for all of the six. Herons was subjected to interrogation for three hours under the influence of sodium pentothal, popular known as truth serum. This drug was administered without his parents' consent and without a warrant by two psychiatrists, Haynes and Roy Grinker, during this interrogation, Heron spoke of an alternate personality named George who has actually committed the murders, which he could have talked about anything anyway. So you can talk about very fucked up things if you're high. You know what I'm talking but about? But you're not high on sodium. Oh, my God. Whatever, dude. I haven't taken pentothal off the truth no, serum. it's just sodium pentothal. Okay, whatever. Well, it after just th- makes you tell the truth. It puts you a little drowsy, but I'm saying it's not like you're like, whoo but that's why they call it the truth serum because it tends to make you open to tell the truth. Anyways, I don't feel like that should be used in in an investigation. No, but I would love to use it with my children. Okay, let's carry on. After the truth serum wore off, Heron spoke with Captain... Uh, Jesus Christ. You're so disgusting and uncivilized. Whatever. You're more uncivilized than me. With Captain Michael and Hearn, with the state's attorney, William Tuhai. Tui. <laughs> I'm just going to say Tui. Uh-uh. Because literally, this is spelt the most weird way. I would not even know how to. And I've, I'm a, I have read over this freaking name. I have no idea how to say it. I don't need a tootie. <laughs> Tui. <laughs> and a stenographer in the room. He told them that his alter ego, George, might have been responsible for the crimes. That George, which happens to be his father's first name and his middle name, Mm, had given him the loot to hide in his door room. Police pressed for George's last name, and he told them he couldn't remember it, but that it was was a murmuring name. What's that mean? (laughs) <laughs> a mur- murmuring I don't know police translated this to ah merman and the media <laughs> took like it took it wait wait merman I don't know and then the media twisted it to murder man oh, which okay. made his reputation look way worse even though that he really technically didn't have any evidence right now I mean, besides, uh, George said that he did the murder, you know, saying George did it. Police questioned Heron's friends and family about this George, but came away disappointed. None of them have ever heard of his alter ego. What Heron's actually said during this interrogation time is in dispute and cannot be confirmed as the original transcript. Um, the original transcript has disappeared. (laughs) Shit. Um, the problem with this interrogation is that most scientists believe subjects under the influence of sodium pentothal are highly influential, causing statements that aren't um, entirely true to come out. By the 1950s, most scientists had declared truth serums 
to be invalid. And most courts will rule any testimony gained through their use inadmissible. In the case of William Herons, the scientific opinion of the true serum had not yet filtered down to the court and police um, departments, of course. So this is basically their thing of evidence, is this truth serum. In 1952, in a post-conviction petition, the state's attorney, William Toohey, admitted under oath that he not only knew about the sodium pentothal procedure, he had authorized it. Even paying Grinker $1,000 that same year, Grinker admitted that Herons never imp- implicated himself in o- any of the killings. On his fifth day in custody, William Herons was given a lumbar puncture without anesthesia. Oh, Okay. And then driven to police headquarters for a polygraph test. They tried to administer the test right away, but ultimately had to reschedule it for several days later as he was too much in pain to cooperate. Reasons for the lumbar puncture is still unknown. Typically, a lumbar puncture or spinal tap is conducted to diagnose diseases and typically performed under local anesthesia. When the polygraph test was finally administered, results were declared inconclusive, which I feel like they should have been. Um, oddly enough, Johnny Reed and Fred E. in Boo <laughs> published the findings of the polygraph test in their 1953 book, Lie, Dete- Lie Detection and Criminal Interrogation, which states murder William murderer William Herons was questioned about the killing and dismemberment of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan on the basis of the conventional testing theory his response on the car test clearly establishes as an innocent person. On July 2, 1946, Heron was transferred to the Cook County Jail where he was placed in, in the um, infirmary to recover. Handwriting analysis cannot link Heron's handwriting to the lipstick message or the ransom note. However, police claim that his fingerprints match the bloody smudge on the door jamb of Francis Brown's apartment and, in addition, a fingerprint on his left little finger matched the ransom note, both with only nine points of comparison. According to the FBI handbook regarding fingerprint identification, there must be 12 points of comparison to indicate positive identification. In the case of Heron's point of comparison, this means that they could have easily matched 65% of the population with, you know, with the whatever points. Mm-hmm. Well, Heron's defense attorney felt he was guilty and made his goal to keep him from dying of the electric chair. How fucked up is that? Your own lawyer tells you, damn, you're guilty, man. You're going yeah, down the drain. I need a new lawyer. <laughs> State attorney Tui didn't feel like he could get a conviction, so he sought out cooperation from defense, defense counsel. Tui offered Herons a plea bargain. The bargain stated that in exchange for his confessing to the murders of Josephine Ross, Francis Brown, and Suzanne Degnan, Herons would serve a single-life sentence. With the help of his attorneys, Herons began to write his confession. He utilized the Chicago Tribune as a guide, guide stating, Huh? What? You were almost three. 
I'm pretty close. Okay. Why? No. What is that? Oh, sh- shoot! It's Sunday. <laughs> well, anyways, um, now I done lost my freaking place. Great job. Well, good lord, you got so many places. Well, anyways, Herons and his parents signed the confession, and a date was set for Herons to make the his official confession on July thirtieth. Herons. His attorney went to Tui's office, where several reporters were assembled to ask questions. Herons tried, but he appeared bewildered and gave report reporters uncommittal answers. Tui withdrew the previous agreed sentence of one life term and made a few minor changes. It stated that it would be three life terms to run consecutively. He then threatened Herons with the with the death penalty if the case went to trial. Herons agreed with the new plea bargain as um, a public forum was once again held in Tui's office. And this time, Herons spoke and answered questions. He even went so far as to reenact parts of the murders and had, and had confessed to. Herons later stated, I confessed to save my life. On September 5th, Ward formally sentenced Herons to three life terms. And on March 5th, 2012, William Herons died at the age of 83 at the UIC Medical Center from complications arising from diabetes. He had been refused parole, and all the pills were refused. At the time of his death, Herons was Chicago's longest-serving prisoner, having served 65 years. And it's pretty fucked up because I think that he was innocent. Mm. I do. I think he was innocent. I think he had issues. I don't care. I think he was innocent. But I think there needed to be more and evidence. News, and news and stuff like that. And anybody that kind of talked to him has always said that if you would just talk to him, he seems like a completely innocent man. Well, that's fine. But I just feel like it needed to be more evidence to convict there was no evidence. I know that. That's what they I'm basically saying. said that if it went on trial, it. that he would probably get the death penalty. Right. And his own lawyer, but he, sh- I meant the appeals and stuff. I mean, he really had no choice. Either it was go on trial or take. Or and take. also the times. Back in the 50s, 60s. The times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was just messed up. Well, but what color was his skin? Shit, I looked at him. I think it wasn't was, he dark complexed. I think it was. Um, let me see really quick. You talk about something. <laughs> tell me about. Okay, well, I'm gonna tell y'all this. We're gonna switch back over. We will now be without ads again. Yay! Because no, he's white. Oh, I thought that he was white I thought, whenever I, I looked at him first. But then I was getting a different picture in my head. Okay, well, we are going back to Captivate. Yeah, because this... Let me tell you this, because y'all are listening to ads and stuff, and we were kind of sucked into this and thinking that it would help us a little bit, because it does cost to do the podcast. Yeah. And doing the free podcast, you don't really have a lot of time with full-time jobs, full-time school to do a lot of patron stuff, so we don't have patrons, we don't, you know. Anyway, let me tell you how much we make from y'all listening to all the ads that they throw in there. For the past, ever since January, 19 cent, 39 cent, 
31 cent, 16 cent. <laughs> okay, I think that's utter bullshit. So we will be going back to commercial free. Yes. And I your think, pleasure. I think that's better. I mean, I do. And, and I am kind of sorry because I didn't realize how much. Well, I didn't know they would throw it in as much as they did. Yeah. But and with the last part of my story, it kind of I didn't notice that there was kind of more court crap, you know, that you don't really kind of like to hear, you know what I'm saying, like that. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. All right, y'all. It's good to be back in this and, new year. Oh, yeah. Patrons, we'll have something out for you in a few days, we yeah. promise. Yeah. Follow us on um, Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, and throw Twitter out the freaking bag. I hate that <laughs> shit. Can't even see nothing anybody posts because everything is just like, oh, go, 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 go. You know, it just goes down the line. Can't even keep up with anything. I think it's bull. We love you. Hope you love us. And as always, I've been Stan. And I'm always Jeru. We'll see you next time. Yep. Hear you next see time. Ya. Or talk to you next time. Yeah, whichever one's fine. See ya. And get out the boondocks. <laughs>